Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, January 12th, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Sheriff and State's Attorney Won't Enforce Gun Law by Eric Hogstrom and Elizabeth Kelsey. Dateline, Galena, Illinois. Joe Davies County's Republican Sheriff and State's Attorney said Wednesday that they will not enforce an assault weapons ban signed into law Tuesday by Governor J.B. Pritzker. The Democratic governor signed the law, which then took effect immediately, not long after the Illinois House of Representatives voted 68 to 41 to approve the ban Tuesday afternoon. The bill passed 34 to 20 in the Illinois Senate on Monday. On Wednesday, Joe Davies County Sheriff Kevin Turner announced he would not enforce the law. In a letter posted on social media, he wrote that the Sheriff's Department will not check to ensure that lawful gun owners register their weapons with the state, nor will we be arresting or housing law-abiding individuals that have been charged solely with the non-compliance of this act. The legislation bans dozens of specific brands or types of rifles and handguns, 50 caliber guns, attachments, and rapid-firing devices. No rifle will be allowed to accommodate more than 10 rounds with a 15-round limit for handguns. Those who already own such guns will have to register them, including serial numbers, with the Illinois State Police. The new law enables merchants to sell or return current stock, and Illinois-based manufacturers can sell their wares outside Illinois or to law enforcement. Turner writes in his letter that he views the legislation as a violation of the Second Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms for defense of life, liberty, and property is regarded as an inalienable right of the, by the people, Turner wrote in his letter. Part of my duties that I accepted upon being sworn into office to protect the rights provided to all of us in the Constitution One of those enumerated rights is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Turner did not return a phone call seeking comment. The East Dubuque Police Department shared the letter from Turner on its Facebook page with the message, Thank you, Sheriff Turner. The Illinois Sheriff's Association is among the groups that opposes the new law. On its Facebook page, as of 5 p.m. Wednesday, it had shared posts from about 10 Illinois sheriffs that vowed not to enforce the law. At least eight of those posts, including the one from Turner, contained nearly identical wording with just the county names changed. Reached by the Telegraph Herald, Joe Davies County State's Attorney Chris Allendorf said he and Turner are in agreement when it comes to not enforcing the new law. I don't intend to prosecute anyone that is otherwise a law-abiding fire arm owner, Allendorf said. The sheriff said it best when he said that we're not going to make criminals out of people whose only crime is not complying with this law. I don't expect that we'll have many instances where we deal with people whose only crime is non-compliance with this, but it should give peace of mind to the many law-abiding gun owners who live here that the sheriff's office and my office are not going door-to-door to enforce this law. Allendorf said he and Turner both take oaths to uphold the Constitution of the United States, which they feel the new law violates. 
There are many laws that we may not agree with that we enforce, but there's never any question in our mind about whether they're constitutional, Allendorf said. This type of law in particular raises questions that we don't normally have. We swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, and this is something that we don't think is constitutional. Critics at the state level warned that the governor's signature will trigger court challenges, which will ultimately overturn the law as a violation of the Second Amendment. Ed Sullivan, a lobbyist for the Illinois State Rifle Association, said legal action will be swift. Allendorf said this is only the second time that he has felt an Illinois law was unconstitutional. The first time was this past fall when he joined a group of dozens of his peers in the state filing suit over the elimination of cash bail in the Safe T Act. The Illinois Supreme Court halted provisions of that new law that would eliminate cash bail for criminal defendants hours before the new policies were set to take effect on January 1st. The High Court said that the stay was needed to maintain consistent pretrial procedures throughout Illinois as the court prepares to hear arguments on the matter. The next story is Dubuque Police and Fire Chiefs Say Recruiting Challenges Persist by Kaylee Reese. Still in the first year of their new roles, Dubuque's fire and police chiefs are focused on recruitment for their departments. Dubuque Police Chief Jeremy Jensen and Fire Chief Amy Scheller have been in their roles since March and June, respectively, following the retirement of previous chiefs. Jensen and Scheller spoke about their goals for their departments Wednesday morning during an event hosted by Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce. More than 40 people attended. A main focus of the discussion centered around recruitment. The Dubuque Police Department currently has 101 sworn officers, and the Dubuque Fire Department employs nearly 100 people. I never in a million years would think people wouldn't want to be a firefighter, said Scheller, who prior to coming to Dubuque spent 24 years at the fire department in Naperville, Illinois. Throughout my career, this has always been a big focus on diversity. I was on every committee trying to find ways to improve our numbers there. Now you pair that with the fact that we can't get any candidates. We are in survival mode. When he applied for the Dubuque Police Department in 1994, Jensen said, he was among more than 500 applicants for an office position. The most recent list of officer applicants had only seven people. Coming off of 2020, it's not cool to be a cop, he said, referencing the year in which the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis and other high-profile incidents triggered a backlash and rash of protests against police departments elsewhere. We don't feel that in Dubuque. We don't see that in Dubuque, but it is a national thing, and officers are tired of it. Jensen said the police department had 17 vacancies at the start of 2022, and while 14 people were hired throughout the year, another 11 left the force via resignation or retirement. In my whole career, we have never been fully staffed, said Jensen, who served as the department's assistant chief before being named chief. We are approved to have 115 people, but it's going to be hard to get that based on our applicants. Jensen also noted that the 
Police Department loses about half of its applicants each year based on the results in the math portion of the required written exam, as well as the physical agility test mandated by the state. That's hard for us, he said. We're trying to challenge that on the state level, telling them that this is maybe something they should look into. But as of right now, there is no indication that they are going to do that. In addition to recruiting more staff, Scheller also stressed the importance of giving new recruits more hands-on training. A lot of current training takes place online, she said, but having hands-on experience is critical to performing with more confidence in the field. All of Dubuque's firefighters also are trained EMTs. When you're running to a lot of calls, there's not really a lot of time for hands-on training, she said. Jensen also spoke about the importance of training, noting that a future goal of his is to provide leadership training opportunities within the department. We average 55,000 to 56,000 calls a year, he said. For 2022, we're going to be about 50,000, I think. So we are trying to balance that and maintain operations and are trying to get trained. Scheller also wrote about the goal of adding a seventh fire station, noting that some of the stations were built in the early 1900s. Currently, she said, the department is working to develop models that might work for a seventh station, and a decision on where one might go will be based on call data. That's one of the city council's highest goals, she said. Actually, City Manager Mike Van Milligan said he would like us to present something in the next couple of months. Despite these challenges, both Jensen and Scheller stressed their departments have great employees and good equipment at their disposal to do their jobs. We don't see that we are short-staffed, and we take pride in that, Jensen said. We function at a high level. We have never cut any services. The last story from the front page is titled, Parks Commission to to Campaign for New Dubuque Pool by John Cruz. Dubuque Parks and Recreation Commission members this week reiterated their belief that the community needs a new municipal swimming pool. But before they can dive into the project, city staff said the proposal will need the support of city council members. Speaking to the commission, Recreation Division Manager Dan Kroger said city staff cannot spend any time or money evaluating a new pool unless the project is named as a at a city council priority. The city council establishes its goals and priorities every August, and such a project is not on the current list. In response, commission members Jennifer Tegas, Jesse Ochoa, and Lori Olendick agreed to form a group that will explore what the project could entail and that will try to generate public support with the hopes of eventually winning over council members. We need this to be a part of City Council's goals, Tegas said. We're going to meet together as a group of citizens to see what the next steps are and how we can garner public support. Ochoa originally proposed the construction of a new pool at the Parks and Recreation Commission's meeting in December, arguing that the city's two current pools are outdated. Tiga said she and her fellow commission members do not currently have a proposal specifying what the new pool facility would include, where it would be located, or if it would replace one or both of the existing city pools. 
She stressed that if the project happens, it likely remains years away from coming to fruition. Right now, we're thinking about how do we make this happen before we say exactly what needs to happen, Tinka said. Following the meeting and in response to questions from the Telegraph Herald, City Council members said they were open to building a new pool, but they want to first see if the public would back the project. Sutton Pool was built in 1936 and Flora in 1955. They were built in 1990 and 91. They were rebuilt in 1990 and 91, respectively. Since then, the city has continued to spend significant amounts of money to maintain the aging facilities. City Council members this month approved spending $227,400 to replace an aging filter tank and recirculation pump at Flora, and plans call for the replacement of filter tanks at Sutton as well. A study commissioned by the city in 2016 estimated that continuing to maintain Flora and Sutton for the subsequent five years would cost the city $2.6 million to $5 million. It also estimated that constructing a new pool would cost about $7 million, but would lower maintenance costs for the next 10 to 20 years and potentially raise pool revenues through increased usage by residents. In the past five years, the city actually spent $120,688 on maintenance at the two pools and $639,150 on capital improvement projects for pool resurfacing, heater, and filter replacements and slide repairs. During that five-year span, pool operations have been significantly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, however. Both pools were closed in 2020, both pools operated in 2021, but neither offered as full of a schedule as pre-COVID, and each was only open one weekend day per week, and only Flora opened in 2022. Kroger said several elements of the pools remain outdated, such as the locker rooms at both, but with limited funding, the city has had to prioritize repairs and maintenance work that ensures the safety and operability of the facilities. We have focused on projects that are essential to the operation of the pools, he said. However, maintaining the pools will continue to cost the city. Kroger said about $800,000 in potential capital improvement projects at the pools are planned for the next five years, including the replacement of both water playgrounds. Kroger added that the city also will conduct a study of the pool's water slides later this year to determine if they also need to be repaired or replaced. City Council Member Danny Sprank said he supports constructing a new pool if it has enough public support. I would not be surprised if we are due to replace one of our outdated pools, Sprank said. I think it would be a phenomenal idea. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh said he also is open to the proposal and believes that residents who support the project should voice their opinions during the city's goal-setting session later this year. I'm incredibly appreciative when community members come forward with big ideas, he said. If we hear from people that want to make changes like building a new pool, then that's how goals and priorities are made. Turning to page two, the Dubuque and Tri-State page, the next story is Bellevue puts $13.1 million school measure on the ballot by Elizabeth Kelsey. 
Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. Bellevue voters in March will be asked to approve a $13.1 million bond measure to help fund the construction of an elementary school. Bellevue Community School Board members this week approved a resolution calling for a March 7th referendum on the measure, which must be approved by 60% of voters to pass. The $13.1 million bond would help fund the first phase of a two-part construction project to build a 37,000-square-foot elementary school on the Bellevue Middle and High School campus. The facility would initially house third through fifth grades, with pre-K through second grades remaining at the current elementary school. If the measure is approved, residents' property taxes would increase by $2.70 per $1,000 of taxable value. According to the district's website, this would mean an increase of $11.09 per month and $133.06 per year in taxes for the owner of a $100,000 residential property. Superintendent Tom Meyer said any costs for the first phase of the project not covered by the bond would be funded by the district's physical plant and equipment levy and the state's one-cent sales tax. Parts of the current elementary school were constructed in 1848. Meyer said the facility is too small for the district's growing enrollment. Some of its classrooms and hallways are narrow and inaccessible, and many areas of the building have inefficient heating and cooling systems. We are out of space, and the space we are using right now is not an adequate or efficient space for our students and what their educational needs are, he said. By moving students out of that area and building a third through fifth grade building, we will be able to spread out some of our other people while also not having to utilize that older part of the building. The second phase of the project would be funded using PPEL and sales tax revenues and would feature either a potential addition to the new building or bring pre-K through second grade students to the facility or renovations and improvements to the high school's fine arts and career and technical education spaces or both. If the bond measure passes, the district's website states that officials hope to open the new school by the fall of 2025. School district residents previously rejected two larger bond measures for a new elementary school. A $16 million measure in September of 2018 was supported by 44% of the voters, and a $14.5 million measure in April 2019 was backed by 47% of voters. School Board President Mike Reed said he feels school officials listen to the community by paring down the project to a simple but functional new building and completing the work in phases to keep costs as low as possible. The new school is going to be pretty much a square building, but it's going to have the right amount of classrooms and the right amount of restrooms the stuff we need, which we are lacking in this old building, he said. We owe it to the kids who attend our school to do better, and I hope our community follows that. The next story is Ernst Laud's Dubuque Sober Living Center for Impact on Community by John Cruz. Earlier this week, Troy McMurray spent time attempting to senatorize his apartment at Liberty Recovery Community in Dubuque. With the help of his aunt and uncle, he tidied up the rooms and made sure it was ready for his expected visitor. 
When U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, toured his apartment on Wednesday, she was impressed. It really looks great, she said. McMurray said meeting the senator was a highlight for him since he first arrived at Liberty Recovery Community, 2216 White Street, about four months ago as part of his recovery from alcoholism. I have been an alcoholic for many, many years, since I was 12, McMurray said. If it wasn't for this place, I wouldn't be here today. Since opening in February with 24 apartments, Liberty Recovery Community has provided affordable, sober living housing, a free sobriety program, and case management. Founder Michelle Mihalikas said the campus aims to support people on the road to recovery and get them back into living a normal life. We know when these people come out of jail or treatment, they have nothing, she said. We start with them from nothing, and we try to build lives. Ernst turned the facility and spoke with residents like McMurray. She said she was inspired by the work being done there. You all have put your hands to work and your hearts to work, Ernst said. Everybody goes through hardship, and we just have to learn how to receive, but then also how to give back. As a member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship, Ernst said she has made several recent visits to small Iowa businesses to learn about their current challenges. A lack of available workers is at the forefront, she said. Ernst said organizations such as Liberty Recovery Community help not only people recovering from alcohol and substance abuse, but also the entire community by helping those who are recovering return to the workplace. Organizations like this have a direct impact throughout our communities, Ernst said. They go on to become good citizens once again, and they are contributing to them. Ernst said she supports federal programs from the Department of Housing and Urban Urban Development and the Department of Health and Human Services that provide grants and assistance to organizations such as Liberty Recovery Community, which was largely initially funded through a $2.7 million grant from National Housing Trust Fund. However, she added that the federal government should not solely be relied on to support these organizations and that states and local communities should also contribute. The federal government is never the total solution for anything, Ernst said. You need local partners. Mahalikas said local donors have allowed Liberty Recovery Community to continue to serve those in need, and with their continued support, she hopes to expand the campus's services in the future. Turning to the news in brief column, the first story is authorities identify two killed in head-on crash in Galena. Dateline Galena. Authorities on Wednesday released the names of two people killed in a crash involving two vehicles and a semi-tractor trailer Monday night in Galena. Domingo L. Marcos, 36, and Ambrosio S. Matan, 23, both of Galena, were pronounced dead at the scene, according to the Joe Davies County Sheriff's Department. A press release states that Marcos and Matan Both were passengers in a vehicle traveling west on U.S. 20, just west of William Drive, at about 11 p.m. Monday. The vehicle was driven by a 14-year-old who was injured and taken by ambulance to Midwest Medical Center in Galena for treatment. His name has not been released. 
Mallory E. Nausner, 18, of Freeport, was also injured in the crash and was taken to Midwest Medical Center. The press release states that Nausner was traveling east on US-20 and entered the westbound lane in an attempt to pass a semi driven by Neil W. Brueger of Rideout. As Nausner's vehicle and Brueger's semi attempted to negotiate a curve in the roadway, Nausner's vehicle collided head-on with the vehicle driven by the 14-year-old. The 14-year-old's vehicle then collided with the trailer of Brueger's semi and came to a rest in the roadway. Nausner's vehicle slid into the north ditch. She was able to exit it before it started on fire. Brueger was not injured in the crash. Authorities continue to investigate the crash. The next story is, authorities say, driver gets in interstate crash into Dubuque man's semi. Dateline, North Liberty, Iowa. Authorities said a driver died Tuesday morning in Johnson County when he crashed into a Dubuque man's semi-tractor trailer. Eric Taylor, 37, of Cedar Rapids, was killed in the crash, according to the Iowa State Patrol. Crash report states that Mark Fensterman, 46, of Dubuque, was driving north on Interstate 380 at mile marker 7 at 11.25 a.m. when traffic on the interstate slowed and became congested due to a towing operation at mile marker 9. Taylor's northbound vehicle was behind Fensterman's semi when it failed to stop and rear-ended the semi's trailer, killing Taylor. The report states that authorities are investigating the crash. The next story is one local COVID-19-related death reported. There was one additional COVID-19-related death reported in the Telegraph-Herald's 10-county coverage area from January 5th to Wednesday. The death occurred in Iowa County, Wisconsin. The Telegraph-Herald continues to track local COVID-19 data, publishing updates on Thursdays. As of Wednesday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention rated the COVID-19 community level as low in Clayton and Delaware counties in Iowa and in Crawford, Grant, and Iowa counties in Wisconsin. The community level was medium in Dubuque, Jackson, and Jones counties in Iowa, Joe Davies County, Illinois, and Lafayette County, Wisconsin. And the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Department's also reported, Lammers Bus Lines of Green Bay, Wisconsin, reported the theft of a $1,600 catalytic converter between 10.35 p.m. Saturday and 8.30 a.m. Sunday from the 2200 block of Kerper Boulevard. Turning to the Tri-State page, the story is titled, Air Carrier to Fly Out of Cedar Rapids as Local Airport Awaits Plan Approval. An air carrier that originally was scheduled to start flying from Dubuque this week instead will fly from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, temporarily. Avalo Airlines announced that flights on the planned Dubuque to Orlando, Florida route instead will leave and arrive at Eastern Iowa Airport starting on Saturday, January 14th. The company said the impacted passengers will receive credits toward a future flight or they can rebook their trip at no cost or cancel for a full refund. The move comes after Dubuque Regional Airport announced on Saturday that it had not yet received approval from the Transportation Security Administration of its airport security plan in relation to the twice-weekly Avalo Airlines flights. Dubuque Regional Airport currently operates under 
a supporting security program under the TSA, which is required for airports that offer flights that hold 60 or fewer passengers. With the arrival of Avelo, which will operate Boeing 737 aircraft that can hold as many as 189 passengers, the airport now is required to submit and receive approval of a complete security plan. That plan has been submitted, but officials are working with TSA to get it approved. It is unknown when that approval might be secured. Impact passengers who have questions can call Avelo at 346-398-7582. While the airport's regulatory approval delay was not our fault, we understand the inconvenience it has caused, the company stated. We look forward to welcoming you aboard Avelo soon. You are listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, January 12, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Betty A. Allen, Betty A. Ball Allen, 95, of 3390 Lake Ridge Drive, Dubuque, died on January 10, 2023, peacefully at home. Visitation is Friday, January 13th from 3 to 7 p.m. at Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Westview Funeral Home, 2659 JFK Road. A celebration of life mass will be at St. Anthony's Catholic Church on Saturday, January 14th at 10 a.m., followed by a catered lunch at O'Malley Hall. Mom would love if you could join us at the visitation and or the mass and lunch. She wanted her services to be on a weekend so more could be part of the celebration. She always was the best host. Following the lunch, bur- the lunch burial will be at the chapel in Mount Olivet Cemetery, Key West, Iowa. Wayne C. Conrady. Wayne C. Conrady, age 75, of Dubuque, passed away unexpectedly at 1.45 a.m. on Tuesday, January 10, 2023, at Mercy One, Dubuque. To honor Wayne's life, family and friends may visit from 3 until 7 p.m. on Friday, January 13, 2023, at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, where there will be a parish scripture wake service held at 7 p.m. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 14, 2023, at the Church of the Resurrection, 4300 Asbury Road, with the Reverend Philip G. Gibbs officiating. Entombment will be in the Mount Olivet Cemetery Mausoleum, where full military honors will be accorded by the American Legion, Dubuque Post Number 6. Dawson D. Hopman, Menominee, Illinois. Dawson David Hopman, the infant son of Patrick and Mariah Bauer Hopman of Menominee, Illinois, was stillborn Monday morning, January 9, 2023, at Unity Point Finley Hospital, Dubuque, Iowa. A private family visitation will be held on Friday at the Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque, followed by graveside services at Nativity BFM, BVM Cemetery, Menominee, Illinois, with the Deacon Jamie Schilling officiating. Russell Lancaster, Jr., Viola, Wisconsin. Russell Lancaster, Jr., 69, of Viola and formerly of Platteville, died on Friday, January 6, 2023. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to noon, Friday, January 13th, at Lafarge Free Methodist Church, where services will follow. Vostig Funeral Home in Veroca is assisting the family. Laura A. Shaw. 
Laura A. Shaw, 64, of Dubuque, died on Monday, January 9, 2023. Private services will be held. A celebration of life will take place at a later date. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Iris E. Walk Maddox, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Iris E. Walk Maddox, 92, of Lancaster, died on Tuesday, January 10, 2023. No services will be held. Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory of Lancaster is assisting the family. Janet Novinsky, Middleton, Wisconsin. Janet Novinsky, 86, of Middleton and formerly of Fenimore, died on Monday, January 9, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, January 13th at Fenimore United Methodist Church, where services will follow. Burial will follow in St. Mary's Catholic Church Cemetery in Fenimore. Larson Family Funeral Home of Fenimore is assisting the family. And Joyce B. Amon. Joyce B. Amon, 89, of Dubuque, died on Monday, January 9, 2023. A wake service will be held at 3 p.m. Monday, January 16th at Leonard Funeral Home, 2595 Rockdale Road, where visitation will follow until 7 p.m. A massive Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 17th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery. And funeral services. Jeffrey Bolsinger, Guttenberg, Iowa. Celebration of Life, 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 29th, the Stadium Bar and Grill in Guttenberg. Ronald J. Castle, Otter Creek, Iowa. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 13th, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Mary Jean Hanfield, Keeler, Wisconsin. Rosary Service, 2.45 p.m. today, Immaculate Conception Catholic Church Parish Hall, Keeler. Visitation, 3 to 8 p.m. today, and from 9 to 10.45 a.m. Friday, January 13th at the Church Hall. Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Friday at the Church. Joanne M. Hosh, Epworth, Iowa. Visitation, 9 a.m. to noon, Saturday, January 14th, Rife Funeral Home, Epworth. Service, noon, Saturday, St. Patrick's Catholic Church, Epworth. Chad C. Janko, Dubuque. Visitation, 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. Saturday, January 14th, Agelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 JFK Road. Service, 11.30 a.m. Saturday at the Funeral Home. William J. Gents, Dubuque. Visitation, 1 to 4 p.m. Sunday, January 15th, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Service, 4 p.m. Sunday at the Funeral Home. Michael J. Kirk, Elizabeth, Illinois. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday, January 28th, St. Paul's Lutheran Church, Elizabeth. Celebration of Life, 11 a.m. January 28th at the Church. Sherry A. Lutgen, Dubuque. Visitation, 3 to 6 p.m. today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Service, 6 p.m. today at the Funeral Home. Richard Ketterer, Fenimore, Wisconsin. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. today, Fenimore United Methodist Church. Service, 11 a.m. today at the church. John J. Krogman, Cascade, Iowa. Visitation, 2 to 7 p.m. Sunday, January 15th, 
Rife Funeral Home Cascade. Richard R. Lopez, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, January 14th, Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory, Lancaster. Services, 11 a.m. Saturday at the Funeral Home. Craig D. Nordenson, Dubuque. Visitation, 1 to 2 p.m. Sunday, January 15th, Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home, 2659 JFK Road. Service, 2 p.m. Sunday at the Funeral Home. Gary L. Oliver, Dubuque. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today, Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Service, 10 a.m. Friday, January 13th at the Funeral Home. June T. Pash, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today, Garrity Funeral Home Chapel, Prairie du Chien. Betty J. Rasmussen, Muskoda, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 1045 a.m. Saturday, January 14th, United Church of Muskoda Presbyterian, Muskoda. Service, 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Suzanne M. Ruff, Dubuque. Celebration of Life, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, January 14th, Dubuque County Fairgrounds Ballroom. Robert B. Schmidt, Dubuque. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 13th, Holy Family Catholic Church, Piasta, Iowa. Mass of Christian Burial, 10 a.m. Saturday, January 14th at the church. Guauchino Sildeci, Marion, Iowa. Visitation, 9 to 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 13th. Rife Funeral Home, Cascade, Iowa. Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Friday, St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade. <clears throat> Joyce M. Sunderland, Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9.30 to 10.58 a.m. today. Miller Funeral Home, East Dubuque, Illinois. Service, 11 a.m. today at the Funeral Home. Loretta A. Turner, Dyersville, Iowa. Visitation, 2 to 3 p.m. Saturday, June 14th, Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, Dubuque. Service, 3 p.m. Saturday at the church. Lawrence G. Weber, Keeler, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 10.45 a.m. today, Immaculate Conception Catholic Church Parish Hall, Keeler. Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. today at the church. Sybil White, Atlanta, Georgia. Service, 10 a.m. today, St. Michael's Catholic Church, Galena, Illinois. And Luke J. Wiederholt, Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 11.45 a.m. Saturday, January 14th. Immaculate Conception Catholic Church Parish Center, Keeler. Massive Christian Burial, noon Saturday at the church. Turning to the sports page, the uh, story at the top of the page is women's college basketball. Duhawks in full control of rival UD. Laura 63, Dubuque 39 by Tom Gregory. Justin Heinzen knows where there are certain things he and his Loras College Duhawks just can't control. On Wednesday night, their rivals from across town were not one of them. Number 22-ranked Loras kept pace with American Rivers Conference leading Wartburg with a convincing 63-39 to win over the University of Dubuque in women's college basketball action at the Lillis Athletic and Wellness Center 
Loris improved to 12 and 3 overall, 5 and 1 in the ARC play, and 2 and 1 since landing in the most recent national poll. That's a lot of noise, Heinzen, the Dubuque's 16th year head coach said of the ranking. We can't control a lot of that. What we can control is the culture and the character in that locker room. We fight every day to control that. We fought hard for that tonight. Though it ended well, it wasn't the best of starts for the Dewhawks. Loris's first two possessions ended in turnovers, but the Dewhawks righted the ship and scored on two of their next three trips up court. Loris's Silvanas Garcesa knocked down a shot clock buzzer beating jumper for the game's first score just over two minutes into action, then dropped a backdoor pass to Madison Fleckenstein for a reverse layup to put the Dewhawks up four to zero. But despite a seven and zero start and another seven and zero run to the end, the court to the end of the quarter, it was Loris's defense that staked them to a double digit lead after one. The Dewhawks forced nine UD turnovers in the opening frame and led sixteen to six. Fleckenstein added another impressive baseline move and also buried a three pointer as Loris widened the gap with a ten and zero run to start the second period. The Dubuque Hempstead product gave the already loud home crowd more to cheer about with an authoritative block of UD's Isabella Tierney's three-pointer attempt with just under five minutes left before halftime. But instead of sparking the home team, the Spartans caught fire afterwards. Although UD didn't score in the quarter until the four-minute and 28-second mark, the Spartans ran off a 10-0 spurt of their own to close the margin to 26-16 at the break. Tabria Thomas converted a pair of three-point plays in the final portion of the second quarter for UD, as Loris suffered more than half of its 18 fouls, five, during that stretch before the halftime. Loris extended its lead in the third with a recipe that's worked all year, feed conference MVP hopeful Sammy Martin down low. The six-foot-one junior from Platteville, Wisconsin, scored two of Loris's first three baskets of the half and scored six points in the third quarter. But the Dewhawks leader got plenty of help from her mates to the tune of three three-pointers from three different sources, Sierra Bachman, Emerson Wittenbaugh, and Hannah Thiele, to run out to a commanding 48-26 to lead heading into the final stanza. We've got a lot of artillery, Fleckenstein said. We've got a lot of players that can do a lot of good stuff. These games against UD are always the best games to play, especially when we get the win. Bachman led a balanced Loris attack with 15 points. Martin added 12, while Wittenberg and Thiele had nine apiece. Thomas was the lone Spartan in double figures with 13 points. Loris hit some big shots, Thomas said. They made a couple of big runs and made it tough for us to come back from. Turning to college basketball, Loris, 86, Dubuque, 74. The title is Small Slice of Revenge by Danny Miller. Ali Sabat remembers the sting he felt on February 24th of last year. Monday's result helped erase some of that from his memory. Before the game, we told the guys, remember that feeling when they beat us three times last year? Sabat said. Remember the hurt that we felt, especially booting us in the playoffs? It feels great to get one back at home tonight. The Dewhawks used scoring surges late in the first half 
and early in the second to expand their lead and then absorbed every punch Dubuque threw at them in the second-half comeback attempt to come away with an 86-74 to crosstown victory on Wednesday at Lillis Athletic and Wellness Center and gain a little redemption on their rivals. Loris snapped a four-game losing streak to UD. Three of those losses came in a month-and-a-half span last year, including a season-ending defeat in the conference tournament. Sabbath paced the Duhawks with a game-best 26 points. Tyler Bass added 20, and Alex Singleton contributed a 10-point, 10-rebound double-double. Keegan Zimmerman led the Spartans with 23 points, while Bryce Prohaska netted 16. In what's become par for the course in this rivalry over the last few seconds, the score was deadlocked six different times, and saw the lead change hands four times in the coming ten minutes of the contest. Then the Duhawks slowly and methodically began to inch ahead. Four quick points from Sabbat made it 24-19 to at eight minutes and eight seconds of the first half, but a three-pointer from Sam Kilberg quickly reduced the deficit to two as the rivals continued to trade baskets. It was with less than five minutes remaining in half when the Duhawks began to create some distance. With Loris ahead, 30-26, to 26, Bass's baseline dunk at 4 minutes and 19 seconds spearheaded a 12-5 to 5 run for the Duhawks to close the first 20 minutes. Zachary Deering's buzzer-beating layup stretched Loris's lead to 42-31, to 31, heading into the break. That was huge, Sabat said. We went into the locker room with the momentum and felt good about ourselves, but... Knew they were going to come back and make their run. We handled it perfectly, I thought. Sabat and Declan Cherlick drained consecutive three-pointers at 15 minutes and 56 seconds of the second to extend the Duhawks to their largest lead of the game, 55-40. to 40. UD countered with a quick 3-13-2 spurt to close the gap to four. Zimmerman's triple at 11 minutes and 16 seconds suddenly put the Spartans right back in it at 57 to 53. But the Duhawks would never afford their rival an inch closer. We were just composed, Sabat said. None of us were yelling at each other. None of us felt panicked by any sense. We just kept our composure and knew we had this one. The Spartans twice more drew within four points, but each time, Loris had the punch back. A 7-0 run with baskets from Miles Berry, Sabat, and Deering put Loris ahead 74-63 to with five minutes to play, and the Spartans couldn't climb any closer than six points the rest of the way. That was all about having confidence in ourselves, Sabat said of his team's ability to counter several Spartan comeback attempts. We knew we weren't losing that game coming into it. We believed in one another and just handled our business. The Telegraph Herald High School Athlete of the Week is Jude Ludwig from Western Dubuque. And the title of the story is Bobcats Ludwig in a Groove by Shannon Mum. After a slowish start to his senior bowling season, Western Dubuque's Jude Ludwig is picking up steam. Ludwig, the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week, bowled 253 279 for a 532 to lead the Bobcats to a 3,366 to 2,586 victory last Friday night in Cedar Rapids. 
His series mark was the third highest in Iowa Class 2A this season. He really started to pick up the past month, and once we hit the new year, he started to get really hot, Western Dubuque bowling coach Grant Kramer said. The 532 was really nice to see from him. Ludwig is in his third year on the varsity bowling team and was a member of last season's team that advanced to the Class 2A state tournament in Waterloo. We didn't finish where we'd have liked to, so that's our main goal, to get back to state and improve on that, Ludwig said. Ludwig said that last week's performance in Cedar Rapids was a team best, leaving him excited for the remainder of the season. We have a really strong group of bowlers, and our expectations are high, Ludwig said. Kramer, who has been watching Ludwig bowl since he was in the second grade, said he has improved in all aspects of the game. He's actually my cousin, so it's been cool getting to watch him become the bowler he is today, Kramer said. He started taking on that leadership role during his sophomore season, and you can tell the other bowlers look up to him. Ludwig said he enjoys having earned that respect and that he is always willing to help the younger bowlers out. I think I've become a pretty vocal leader, he said. I want to do whatever I can to help them get better and continue our successful program. Ludwig has been bowling since he was eight years old and developed a strong love for the game that has continued throughout his high school career. Oh, there's just an excitement you get when you bowl a strike and you are always getting to hang out with your teammates, he said. It's something fun that I have really enjoyed getting to do. We'll finish with a story from the Lifestyle page, The Arts, and it's titled Ten Years of Rock by Megan Gloss. Leslie Shalabi might be best known as a force among the local food community for her role as co-founder and owner of Convivium Urban Farmstead in Dubuque. But what might not be known is that she is no slouch behind a microphone. I always sang in high school, but I never did anything again until I was 38, Shalabi said, now 50. I just decided one day that I wanted to sing again. She took her first steps back to the performance world as one half of an acoustic duo playing in coffee shops. Then she joined a reggae soul band that performed for four years at nightlife hotspots and at festivals throughout Madison, Wisconsin. When she returned to Dubuque, she formed the blues band Mama Tess and the Chain of Fools. We had a big horn section, so we played Dubuque and all that jazz and music in the gardens at the Dubuque Arboretum and Botanical Gardens, Shalabi said. While the COVID-19 pandemic saw a break in the chain of fools, Shalabi had been pining for an opportunity to step to the mic again. She'll get that opportunity as one of seven vocalists for the Dubuque Symphony Orchestra's Ultimate Rock Hits. Performances will take place at 8 p.m. Friday and Saturday, January 13th and 14th at the Mississippi Moon Bar in the Diamond Joe Casino, Port of Dubuque. I had attended this show lots of times and had been pining to be asked to do it, Shalabi said. It's very exciting, and it for sure is the biggest thing I've ever done. We're talking about musicians who are used to performing in bars and are very comfortable doing it by ear, not sticking to a chart, but instead feeling their way through the music. They're combining with musicians who stick to the notes. It's been very interesting watching these two worlds come together. 
Now, in its 10th year, the show sees the Dubuque Symphony Orchestra team up with a curated roster of local rock musicians to present an eclectic playlist that, in years past, has tapped into pop, rock, rhythm and blues, funk, metal, and more. Dubuque Symphony Orchestra music director and conductor William Intrilligator said this year will be no exception in offering another unique set that spans decades of that popular music canon. Every year we have such a diverse and unusual program that's always a lot of work to put together, but is also very exciting to put together. This year we have a lot of new faces in the group and we're also performing a lot of artists we haven't highlighted before, such as the Cranberries, the Bangles, Roxette, Slipknot, One Republic, Hall and Oates, Billy Joel, Led Zeppelin, and Chicago, which will showcase the DSO's brass section on 25 or 6 to 4. We also will continue to highlight members of the orchestra who are just as capable of playing Beethoven as they are Megadeth's Symphony of Destruction or the White Stripes. I really can't wait for people to see Leslie take the stage. She just takes over and is in it to win it. She's a great performer and is in such a good place with her music. The costumes also are great. We just keep getting bigger and better every year. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, January 12, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.